Jingi walla blagami arako dogum. Jendamani nyali garamanyali nya. Nyali nya nyathan nyathan jen. Garamanyali tugun gunu. Wana jangma malagunu gala tugun. Nyali nya tugun gunu. Bogube blagame. Thank you, Delta K, Araku Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Conversations from Byron, a podcast series featuring writers from the 2020 festival lineup. In this session, Tegan Bennett Daylight talks with Charlotte Wood about her new book, The Details on Death, Love and Reading, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at byron.com. Hello, I'm Charlotte Wood, and with me today is writer, critic and teacher Tegan Bennett-Daylight, and we're going to be discussing her brilliant new book, The Details, on love, death and reading. Hello, Tegan. Hi, Charlotte. Now, this conversation would ordinarily have taken place in the beautiful sunshine of Byron Bay and the marquees of the 2020 Byron Writers' Festival. But as we all know, circumstances have made such gatherings impossible, so the festival is taking place online instead. Now, Tegan and I are recording this at my home, so I hope you can forgive any inner-city background noise that might creep in. Tegan Bennett Daylight is the author of three novels, Bombora, What Falls Away and Safety, as well as several books for children and teenagers. Her last book, Six Bedrooms, was shortlisted for the ALS Gold Medal, the Steel Rudd Award and the 2016 Stella Prize. Tegan and I have been very close writing buddies for a long time now and we never get sick of talking about books, reading and the messy process of writing. I'm going to begin by asking Tegan to read a little bit from the start of the details. This one's from the first essay called Detail One. When I told my mother I was bored, she would start a pilgrimage around the house. She'd go from room to room, shelf to shelf, and come back with a pile of eight or ten books. She'd sit on the edge of my bed and slide the pile apart, describing each book. Some of them I knew I'd never read, either because I'd already tried them and found their first few pages dull, or because the lettering on the cover or the font inside was too small, suggesting a density of thought that I would find impenetrable. But in general, every pile contained two or three books I could read, and boredom would be held off for another day or two. My mother used books as a form of communication. It wasn't simply the exchange I've just described, her giving me books she'd read and loved as a child and hoping I would love them too, but the words in the books themselves. If we drove towards the Gladesville Bridge at night, the lights of cars cascading down its curve, she would quote Hart Crane, who described headlights in the bridge, as the immaculate sigh of stars. Hamlet formed a great deal of mum's spoken language. If I came home from school after a bad day, she'd sigh about the slings and arrows. If you asked her whether she was telling the truth about something, she was likely to answer, "'Tis true, tis true, tis pity, and pity tis, tis true." Now that I talk in this way to my own children, I know what was happening for her. The words of great writers somehow vivify experience. In borrowing them to describe our own lives, we're amplifying what we've seen or felt or heard. In high school, we had to study the poetry of Philip Larkin, which back then I found mostly a collection of depressing observations about a world that I was thankful had very little to do with my own. 
but I memorised the single poem I liked, Ambulances, and could not and cannot see an ambulance without hearing in my head a wild white face that overtops red stretcher blankets momently as it is carried in and stowed. When two friends died in a car accident a month or so before our final exams, this poem haunted me, troubled me, and somehow informed my imaginings about what had happened that night. Amongst the books Mum brought me to read when I was a child were The Secret Garden and A Little Princess, as well as their author Frances Hodgson Burnett's smash hit Little Lord Fauntleroy. I haven't met an adult my age who's read this book, but I did so several times. It's a sticky book, guided by that strange Victorian obsession with the little mother, the same obsession that Virginia Woolf, a child of Victorian parents, grappled with in her diaries and her fiction. Somehow, though, I learned to overlook the archaic, to be open to the oddnesses of different eras, and to read for something else. That something else was what I described to my students as sensory detail, the minutiae of life that's the real stuff that makes up a book. I've been teaching writing and literature for a long time, and I hear myself talking about sensory detail a lot. So many of my students write stories bristling with intent. A row of archers, arrows aimed at their topic, they forget that there are such things as weather or food or wild white faces or headlights on their slow decline over the arch of a bridge in darkness. When I want to explain sensory detail to my students, I find myself talking about the Harry Potter series, which I'll confess I don't like much, but they do. I ask them to consider whether it's the lists of richly imagined foods, the all-flavoured jelly beans, the butter beer, the pumpkin juice and the feasts in the Great Hall that are the book's real attraction. It depresses me to think that the appeal lies in their saccharine hero and his invented difficulties. His quickly solved problems always remind me of the Flight of the Concord song that dramatises Lord of the Rings. We'll never make it. There's thousands of them, and only nine of us. We made it! Too many of my students tell me that Harry's adventures teach them that however hard things are, they can always overcome their difficulties, to which I want to say tell that to Anne Frank. But just enough of them seem to wake up when I mention the food in Harry Potter. Like Edmund's Turkish Delight or Mr and Mrs Beaver's freshly caught and cooked fish in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, the butter beer and the all-you-can-eat-of-whatever-you-want feasts speak directly to something very simple in humans. Sensory detail. Food as comfort, as reward, as enchantment. A sled riding crisply over white snow. The smell of earth in a garden that's just been weeded. For me, detail yields metaphor, the most useful tool of the writing teacher. I think of the secret garden almost every time I teach. I hear myself saying to students, let that word breathe, take all the other words out from around it. And when I'm saying it, I'm thinking of Mary using a stick to dig between the new green sheets in the walled garden in her new, freezing, unfriendly home. When I teach writing or literature, I feel as though I'm the owner of a storehouse or a granary that floats in the air behind me. All those books, all of that detail, just waiting to be called on. And when I say granary and floats in the same sentence, I know I'm somehow referring to or calling up Keats's spirit of autumn, sitting careless on a granary floor, hair soft lifted by the winnowing wind. I turn to look into my storehouse and there is Mary kneeling in the earth making space between the newly shot bulbs and I know straight away that this is an image about writing, that Frances Hodgson Burnett, whether she knew it or not, was writing about writing and waiting for me to call her back into being. Thank you, Tegan. It was a fantastic way to start. Now, 
The Details is a kind of unusual book. It's part memoir, part family portrait, part literary criticism, part love letter to books and writers. So that's how I describe it. But how do you describe it? Well, I think your description is really good. I also, one of the things I'm proud about in the book is its structure. I'm really happy with the way it's shaped. So there's a lot of essay collections that I read and I love a lot of them. I'm a big fan of Gia Tolentino. I like Maria Chumakin. I like Fiona Wright. And I'm very keen, as you know, on James Wood. But I don't often see uh, a narrative arc in a book of essays. And I learned from writing uh, my book Six Bedrooms, which is a collection of short stories, to shape that arc. And in fact, the truth is I learned that from you. (laughs) When Six Bedrooms was finished, or what I thought was finished, I took it to Charlotte. And one of the fabulous things she did for me was to rearrange it so that it had a very definite narrative arc. And so that's what she taught me to do with this book. Well, yeah, sometimes just having somebody else's eye on on the structure, isn't it? Now, it's called The Details, and there's a kind of thesis running under all the essays, even though they're all, you know, covering these different bases. And that thesis, I think, is that the meaning of our lives is captured not in the big picture, the outline, but in the small, intimate corners of that picture and in the details. So tell me why details of all kinds, are so important to you as a person and as a writer? Well, first, as a writer, I think the idea comes, as a lot of my ideas come from teaching. I've been teaching for nearly 25 years, and it takes about 10 years for an idea to emerge from my teaching. I realised after a while that what I was saying to students, even though I hadn't actually articulated it, was there are only about five or six stories, and they're all told don't worry about repeating yourself. We all know this story. But the detail is what's personal. The detail is what makes you unique as a writer and the detail is what belongs to you. So in writing, I realised that I, although I enjoy a good plot as much as anybody else and a good structure, what I was really looking for was that sensory detail I'm talking about. And in my life, One of the things that happened for me after my mother died was that I realised that she had taught me how to look at things because she was such a, she was what James Wood would call a serious noticer. She was such a noticer, and not just a noticer, but a recorder. So she recorded things by telling them to me. Mm. Isn't that interesting? I'm like my mother's dictaphone. She said things to me, she pointed things out to me, and in the noticing, she made me a noticer as well. Mm. So And a writer, probably. Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm glad you mentioned your mother, Deborah, who was an amazing woman. Because one of the through lines of the book is mothering and how it has both been shaped by and given, and given expression through your reading, I think. So you write about Deborah, her childhood, and her very highly attuned reading life. And also very movingly about her death and the details of those moments. You also write about your experience of giving birth and its aftermath in your celebrated essay, Vagina, which I can hardly even say because I'm so English in my background, and which which made every childless woman I know um, cross her legs very tightly indeed. But there's something serious about this. In that essay, you quote from a letter that Jane Austen wrote in which she 
describes one of her sisters-in-law after one of many, many births as a poor animal. So why did you want to write about the animal physical side of becoming a mother? Yeah, mostly what happens with the essays that I write, apart from the ones that, well, actually this happens with the ones that are responses to books as well, is I get this kind of feeling of filling up and then overflowing. So I start to write when I'm overflowing. So the natural pattern in my life is to have a large experience, to store it somewhere in my body, and then over the ensuing months or years to kind of modify it, you know, the way you tell yourself stories about yourself and what's happened to you, and to finally put it in a kind of narrative place in your life. One of the things I've learned with a bit of an experience of depression is that one of the awful things that goes out the window when you're depressed is the narrative of your life. You no longer have a story to tell mm. yourself. So I know that I'm in good shape when I can tell a good story about my life. So vagina, I had, I've got two children. I had two births. They were, as far as births go, not traumatic. One had a fair bit of surgical intervention, but that was fine. They were both vaginal, and the second was very quick. So my son Paddy was nearly born in the car. I actually asked Russell to uh, describe that to me the other day because I have no memory of it. And I said, did I wear a seatbelt? And he said, you just screamed, don't turn, don't do this, don't do that. <laughs> so those uh, did some damage to my vagina, but they also were very, very profound, uh, as anybody who's given birth knows, sort of both destructive and constructive experiences. After a certain amount of time, I started to have problems with my vagina. I eventually needed to have an operation on it. And then a year or so after the operation, I was ready to tell the whole story. The births and the vagina, obviously, they were inextricably linked. And one of the, the reasons I quote that Austen is because I'm sure there's a literature in letters or in conversation between women in 1810 about vaginas, because there must have been, because they had them and things happened to them. But, of course, it's not in any of the literature. Mm. And, of course, Jane Austen didn't give birth, but what she did was she assisted her sisters-in-law during birth and, and helped them get back up on their feet, literally, after births. Now, some of these women had 13 or 14 children. Mm. Some of them would have had terrible damage done to their vaginas and no space to talk about it, no conversation to have and no way to fix it either. And what happened with this story of my vagina was that it was just building and building and building. And in fact, you were present when I wrote it. I wrote it in about two days, mm -hmm. extremely quickly. One thing that's really interesting in that essay is how unsayable this stuff is you know in our literature as you say that it's you know we think about all these women in the 19th century having 20 children or something yes. as if they just popped out and off they went yeah, and but, off they went yeah but also i'm interested that you mention carl ove nausgaard in that essay yeah i became i can't think without thinking about books as well. So books are a sort of reference point for me. So when I'm thinking something, I'll often kind of triangulate my thought against a book. So when I started to write this essay, I was reading um, Carl Uwe's um, uh, My Struggle series. And like a lot of people, not like everybody, 
but like a lot of people, I was blown away by it. It seemed like such a radical experiment. Can you just briefly describe that, those books, for people who don't know who he is? Yeah. So he's a Norwegian writer. He was a straightforward and relatively successful, meaning poor as shit, novelist in Norway for a long time. And he had a kind of revelation where he suddenly decided that fiction was a lie and that well-shaped novels was not something he was going to do anymore. Now, I'm actually a big fan of the well-shaped novel, but nonetheless, I'm always excited when a writer has an epiphany. And he decided that instead of writing a well-shaped novel, he would just recall every instant of his life. Now, of course, let's be honest, you can't recall every instant of your life. His books are as shaped as any books, but they do have this mad accumulation of detail so that he writes things like, I picked up the coffee, I sipped it, mm, I put it down. And it has a hypnotic effect as a reader. So one of the things I noticed when I was having problems with my vagina was that I thought about it all the damn time because I couldn't get away from it. Mm. I had something wrong. It didn't hurt, but there was a, a protrusion and it was unpleasant. And I thought about it constantly, but of course I couldn't talk about it. Mm. And I thought, imagine if I wrote the My Struggle series, if a woman wrote if any that, woman wrote it, I'd be thinking about my vagina all the damn time and so the book would be full of my vagina. And, and you know, there's been quite a bit of discussion, I think, about if, if Nausgaard's book was written by a woman, no one would read it. Yes. It's so interesting, isn't it, when you see, you know, well, there are so many fabulous... Uh, experimental writer, women writers that we know, you are amongst them. But think of Maggie Nelson, think of Jenny Offal, think of Ali Smith, think of Toni Morrison, if you go back, all these women who are driving this kind of overturning of old forms. But it does seem to me that the one who's going to win the Nobel is going to be Carl Ulrich Knausgaard. <laughs> oh, there's a lot to say about you know, that essay and the kind of silence around women's bodies over, as you say, kind of generations of, of writers and of literature. But let's move on. I, I want to talk about the way you conceived this book because I remember that as the book was sort of coming together, all the essays that you'd written for various places seemed to be swirling together in a way that might become a book, you had a sort of horror of writing a Tegan Loves Literature book. Mm. Um, you mm. were kind of disgusted by that idea of writing my life in books. I, and, yeah. I mean, I guess in my voice there's some feeling about why that is a, a repellent idea to you, but why, what's wrong with my life in books? Yeah, yeah. Because you, you sort of the have reflection we give it. Yeah, I have done that. Um, it's interesting. My lovely students put together a little collection of things that I'd said during class one year, and that was quite thrilling. And one of the things I'd said was, you do not devour books, you read them. And I've always been opposed to, to that literature about books that's just like, oh, as a child, I just read the days away. Having said that, as a child, I just read the days away. <laughs> so... I'm doing it too. So what do I think? What's different or what am I hoping to be different in my approach? I think what I want to say is that books for me are not uh, – reading them 
is not an intellectual exercise. And when I read, particularly as a kid, I was reading with the body. For some reason, and I guess this is what happens to a lot of writers, for some reason when I read, that was when I felt seriously alive. And I guess I'm trying to not discredit years of fabulous writing about reading books, but I want to write like James Wood writes about books. He writes about books with this brilliant mixture of total authority and complete helplessness before the text. Mm. He reads with the body, even though you can see what a sharp intellect and beautiful vocab he has. He's a helpless reader as well. So I'm trying to find words for that that properly honour it and don't just kind of sideline it as an attractive practice. Yes, or some sort of status-seeking exercise where you've read all the right books. Yeah. Because one of the things I love about this the details book, is how often you might say, um, oh, I started that book, I didn't finish that book, my mother wanted me to read that book, but I could never get past the ugliness of the font or something. You yeah. Know, that there isn't a kind of improved Tegan as a result of reading anything. Yeah, yeah, and you get to a point. I mean, I've done my sh- my fair share of book boasting in my 20s, <laughs> but you get to a point where you realise that a conversation is... Uh, an empty lie if you're pretending to have read something that you haven't. Um, you are three things centrally, I think, in your life. You are a writer, a parent and a teacher, among other things, like a friend and a daughter and a sister and all of that. But those three things seem very central to your identity and very tied up with reading. Tell me about your essay, The Difficulty is the Point. This essay was uh, published in The Guardian, where it kind of exploded. It was shared over 12,000 times around the world. The article itself had more than a 1,000 comments, and you had you know, emails and things from people around the world. Why do you think that essay, The Difficulty is the Point, struck hit the nerve that it did? Well, The Difficulty is the Point is about the time that I spent at a New South Wales regional university teaching a subject to education students that was whose sole intent was to increase their literacy because education students in New South Wales have to reach a certain level of English, written English, before they can become teachers. And a lot of the kids at this uh, university, which had a pretty low ATAR, a low entrance level for education, hadn't actually reached that standard. So the subject was designed actually by my husband Um, in order to uh, raise their levels of literacy. So when I started teaching at this university, I had been at city universities my whole life and I'd been teaching in creative writing where once upon a time, not so much now, but once upon a time, you were teaching kids whose literacy was uh, integral to their way of being. These kids came from regional schools, it seemed almost as though they didn't have a library. It was their their exposure to books had been minimal, not all of them, but for a lot of them they just had not seen books. So we tried to teach them literacy through the lens of Australian literature. So every week we would look at a few extracts from great works of Australian literature. It was heaps of fun. I wrote the essay because I wanted to describe what it was like to try to teach a love of literature to 
categorical non-readers. So when I say education students, I mean PE students. You know, they're going to be PE teachers, so they're not necessarily reading books, but their literacy wasn't quite at the level that would enable them to get a job, so they needed to raise it. It touched a nerve because I also wrote about the um, neoliberal university. Uh, we're seeing this even more now, what has happened over the last 10 to 15 years of tertiary teaching or tertiary life is that there are fewer and fewer academic jobs and more and more jobs in managerial positions. So the managers go on outnumbering the academics. So it is a contested space in which to work. So I wrote about that. And I also wrote about the fact that uh, now at university with a whole new cohort of young people going to university because there's not nearly so many blue-collar jobs as there used to be, their levels of literacy are not what they used to be 20 years ago. You are literally teaching them to read and write. And you're also teaching them to read fiction. And quite often in, in that essay, and, and I think in um, Inventing the Teenager, another one, you talk about how they, they are sort of angry when they read something they don't like. Yeah, yeah. And it's a sort of, it seems to me, a, a customer mentality. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I'm always really cautious when I talk about this stuff because you could see me as a basher of millennials, which I'm definitely not intending to be and I don't feel. I find, uh, I mean, I've been teaching for 25 years, so I've seen several generations of kids come and go. But the more young people I see, the more I'm convinced of this generation's kindness, their generosity to each other, their openness... Um, but I also see that mostly, really, the main reason is that they are so distracted by their phones and there are so many other easier things to do. Mm. They're not really readers. Mm. So I often think if I had had the internet when I was young, I would never read books. Yeah, yeah, because your attention would work in an entirely different way. This is We don't actually know yet. The research is not yet in what this is doing to attention spans, to the architecture of the brain. There's no point panicking. This is where we are. Yeah. We've had radio, we've had television. But also we've done it to them. Yeah. Right? yeah. We've created a university system that allows you to do a degree without ever going to a class. Yes, that is the other thing. And I think that was one of the things that touched a really powerful nerve because a lot of my emails, letters and texts and all sorts of things came from academics all over the world who said, oh my God, you're describing exactly what's happening for me. Because the thing that I haven't added to this conversation is that universities need to make money these days. They lack the kind of government funding that they need. They get some, but they don't get enough. And thus they have customers. The customers are the students and the way you make the customer happy is by not disappointing them, by failing them. Mm. So I am now passing students whose work, if I was a high school teacher, I might think twice about passing. Mm. So that doesn't make them bad kids, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be at uni, but it does mean that if we keep passing people, if we keep passing these kids, we kind of, we do them a disservice. We don't give them a chance to fail, literally to fail, and we don't teach them. Mm. So you, you've talked about the tools of writing, language, rhythm, detail, imagery, how these things all work together. 
In your very lovely essay about S.J. Perlman um, and humour in literature, you talk about the joy of finding the right word, the exact right word. What, what does finding the right word or the right language to express yourself do for a person, for any of us? It connects you to the truth of your experience. When you get the words right, you understand the experience properly. So when I work with students and, you know, I'm working with students all the time and I, I'm not kidding, I'm working with students who shift tenses three times in a sentence, whose sentences have no subject in them, all, all sorts all sorts of problems that I haven't even thought of yet, if you know what I mean, I'll get a new set this semester. So I work with them on a sentence level. I don't. I, I do look at the big picture, but I'm much more interested in the sentence because that's where the truth lies. When they get a sentence right and they are able to express a simple thing clearly to themselves, you can see them beginning to make sense to themselves. You see the students who have who listen, who get better. You see them. You literally see them get happier. Mm. It's, it's really a delightful thing. And it's why it's so important that we don't deny them that, that capacity with language. Um, <clears throat> and deny them the opportunity to fail, to be honest, in yeah. order to get better at mm. language. Yeah. In, I'm, I'm not sure even which essay it's in, but we're, uh, well, the, the essay about George Saunders and his, his masterful use of, of how dead the language of advertising and consumerism is and, and how it sort of kills the people in his stories. They're mm. sort of deadened by their captivity to this sort of corporate language. Um, I want to talk, one of the things I love about this book so much is the way that you start off talking about one book or writer and we heard it in the um, bit that you read. And then that calls up another writer or a book and then a connection is made with something else and there's an, and then it's answered by another one. It's this beautiful sort of river of, of um, links between writers and books. Tell me about the connection between Moby Dick, your friend Patrick, and your favourite <laughs> band from the 90s, the Truffids. And this is all in the final essay, Details 3. Why do these... Why do these things three things together. speak to each other? <clears throat> well, I'm an, a natural digressor, I've discovered, and I've now formed a habit of when I'm talking, saying to people, hang on, this is in parenthesis, I'll just add this, and then I'll go on. So I, I now speak like I write, or I write like I speak, I can't remember which came first. That's my favourite essay in the book. Not because it's the best, but because it's the most joyful and some of the essays deal with some some unhappy material, which I hope I've brought joy to, but nonetheless they're about death and so they're sad. This essay is cheerful. And in this essay I thought, I am going to just free associate. I'd recently read Moby Dick for the first time. It was one of those books I was just unable to read for years and years and years and years. And then I did the thing that I always do with big books, which is where I say you know what, I don't have to remember everything. How about I just... I know, how liberating. Isn't that weird? I think that's it's that information anxiety that stops us reading big books. It's like, what if I forget? And what if I don't remember who's... Who's who and whose mother the, is who. Yeah. And, and you said you were taught to read Hilary Mantel by a friend who said, ah, forget it. 
She said they're all called Mary and they're yeah. all called Henry Thomas. or whatever. Yeah, just go with it. Yeah, and then I could. and then you just let go and it's like I don't care. You just enjoy the writing. So I read Moby Dick like that and I finally understood what a mad book it was, why we're still reading it, why it's a classic because it is so experimental and it is even more than Tristram Shandy, it is about digression. He has to keep stopping to say, hang on, I just want to talk to you about whale's tales for an entire chapter. Incredible. So I understood that he was using his book as a kind of portmanteau with many, many compartments. Each chapter was a new compartment and he just stuffed them in. So my essays are often an attempt to enact what I've been reading. So the essay is modelled on Moby Dick in that I allowed every digression, every new compartment to rise up. One of the things about Moby Dick is that uh, the author was reading Shakespeare for the first time when he wrote it, and thus the language of Moby Dick is insanely lush and rich in metaphor. So there's that. There's the Triffids, who's um, 90, I can't remember, 1980-something uh, album, Born Sandy Devotional, is my favourite album of all time. And the thing about David McComb was that he used language and music in that incredibly lush way that Herman Melville does. He indulged and in he wasn't ashamed of that. And he wasn't ashamed. He was so you in fact, a note he, or you saw a Yeah, I found So so this is you've reminded me, this is what happened. My friend Patrick, who he and his partner Yani are the godfathers of our children and they are our oldest friends, both both of our Russell's and my oldest friends. Patrick knows how much I love the Triffids. He loves the Triffids. Russell loves the Triffids. He sent me something that he found on the Triffids Facebook page, which was a note that David McComb had written about Born Sandy Devotional before he wrote it. He said, The theme will be unrequited love, but the language will reach way above and beyond that. Very literary, to prevent it being soppy. Muscular, slow, droning, long background strings, deft, jazzy bass and drums. Isn't that gorgeous? Such a gorgeous description. So, when Patrick sent me the text, that text that I've just read out to you, I was reading Moby Dick. I realised that David McComb's attitude to language and to music was quite similar to Herman Melville's. But I also realised that over a long friendship such as the one I've got with Patrick and the one we share as a foursome um, has digressions in it. It's compartmentalised. It has bits and pieces. It has lists. And one of the things that uh, Herman Melville does... Sorry, this is a long answer, but it's no, a complex it's an excellent thing. excellent answer. Uh, one of the things that Herman Melville does in Moby Dick is he makes lists. He's mad for lists. There's this Love beautiful this. book about... There's this beautiful bit about the... Um, about the whale's tales or the whale's tale or he says first this then this then this then the other and one of the things that Patrick Yani Russell and I do a lot and have always done is send each other lists so we had been sending each other lists of our favorite albums and I'll just record that Patrick's <laughs> favorite albums are Parade by Prince and he got two Liberty Bell and the Black Diamond Express by the Go-Betweens and Russell's favorite is Parade by Prince Mine is born sandy devotional. And there is, I think, in your discovery of each other as young people, this joy in finding people who were not ashamed of 
literariness of yeah. ambition with language and poetry of experience, yeah. which I think for Australians has always been a little bit kind of hard to admit to or be free with. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things I've always loved about McComb is he grew up in Perth. And you could look at Perth in many ways, but one of the ways he looked at it was this, as this kind of landscape for these huge feelings that he had. And he threw himself at that landscape and wrote about it so richly and beautifully. And I want to say, parenthesis, that during these difficult times, you know, I keep getting asked what book we read and how do we get through it and, you know, all of those sorts of things. And I have found myself rereading everything by Lawrence Durrell, Gerald Durrell's older brother. I was chatting to Geordie Williamson about it just earlier today and he said, oh, I can't read Lawrence Durrell, too perfumed. And I said, yeah, but remember when we used to read for beauty mm. instead of for trauma, remember? Mm. Remember when we used to drown in books? And that's what I'm looking for at the moment, beauty, and that's what uh, David McComb delivers. Well, that is so beautiful. We... Uh, you know, we could really talk about the details in detail for at least another hour, but we are not allowed. So I have to wind this up, Tegan. Thank you so much for talking with me for the Byron Writers' Festival podcast. Congratulations on the details and may it fly into readers' hands. Thanks so much, Charlotte. I never get sick of talking to you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the Copyright Agency's Cultural Fund. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Mm-hmm.